0: passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now here's Pastor Kurt Truxess. We all love the rags to riches stories, and a number there's a number of them out there in public, but there's probably a rags to riches story that many of us don't know, yet it's just right under our nose. It's the Howard Schultz story. Does anybody know his story? Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He grew up destitute in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Really didn't have much of anything, but thankfully he was athletic. Because of his athleticism, he was able to get a scholarship to the University of Northern Michigan for football after high school. While there, he pursued a degree in communications. Graduated uh, and then began a job at Xerox. But Xerox is not the kind of a future he had his eyes on. Actually, what caught his eyes was a small chain of coffee shops. There, there were 60 of them. And Through a series of circumstances, he was able to get the job as CEO of this small coffee shop chain. In the next few years, he turned 60 coffee shops into a $1.1 billion business called Starbucks. That's an incredible rags-to-riches story that many of us didn't know, and it's right under our nose. We all love those kind of stories, but if the truth is told, we don't just like hearing them or reading about them. The honest truth is each one of us wants to be a part of them. Each one of us would love to be able to be successful and to be used in a great way for God and in a great way for his kingdom. And to have God lift us up. Now, this morning, as we look at God's Word, we're going to look at what are the qualities of a life that God lifts up? What are the qualities of a person that God uses in a great way for His kingdom? So let's get prepared to dive right into our text. As a church, we have been studying our way through the book of Genesis. And for the last few weeks, we have been looking at a man named Joseph. And if anybody had a bummer of a deal in life, it would be Joe. Because he started out, his brothers sold him into slavery. I mean, that is a bad way to start when you're a teenager. Then when he was hired as a slave, he lived a really good, exemplary life, working really well for his boss. And when his boss's wife wanted to... Uh, be involved with him sexually, he chose purity instead of adultery and ended up thrown in jail for a crime he didn't commit. There he languished in prison. And in prison, he uh, actually was really serving the other prisoners, doing a good job with that. And he ended up serving a very high-profile prisoner we looked at last week called the cupbearer. He told his story to the cupbearer, and God even allowed him to interpret the cupbearer's dream. And he says, remember me when you get out of this prison. The cupbearer went out of the prison, and what did he do? A serious case of amnesia. Forgot him for two years. Now, Joseph's life has been going in exactly the wrong direction, but the day it actually turns around and heads in the opposite direction. And he becomes a wild success beyond his dreams or imagination. Let's dive in the text and see how this whole story unfolds. Beginning in chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the in the reed grass and behold seven other cows ugly and thin came up out of the nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the nile and the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows and pharaoh woke and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time and behold seven ears of grain plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted up seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. and Behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and he called for all of the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Two weeks ago, when we looked at Joseph, he was 28 years old. Today, he is, in this scene, he is 30 years old. He has languished in that prison for two full years beyond his time with the cupbearer. And if you were in his shoes, I am sure you would have felt like God has forgotten you. You would have felt ignored by God and your life was completely off track. But this morning, we find out that actually his life was completely on track, and he was exactly where God wanted him to be. And the reason we find this all out, it begins with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh and his dream. Now, let me just go through this dream a little bit. It talks about cows coming up from the Nile, and that was pretty normal. Cows normally would go into the Nile. They'd they go into the water to get cool in the heat of the day and to avoid the flies. And seven cows come out of the Nile. And they're those plump, juicy cows. These cows should have all been on The Greatest Loser television program. You know, these are the big cows. They had Snicker bars and pepperoni pizza in their feeding trough. That's how they—nice, big, juicy burger cows. And they come out, and behind them come the seven skinny cows. Now, the skinny cows, these guys all look like they came off a poster for a foreign aid. They're nothing more than skin and bones. And here is where it gets really, really weird. Because the skinny cows eat the plump, fat, juicy cows. And it doesn't say it in this particular section, but as we go a little further, you'll see it. What's amazing is the skinny cows don't gain a pound. Now, I don't know, guys. I look at chocolate and I gain weight. Eating an entire cow, I would gain some serious ones. But these guys, they don't gain a little bit. Now, the thing you need to understand that we often miss when we read this as a children's story is this is does not take place like a video game where like one cow icon, you know, swallows another cow icon. This is a graphic nightmare. You guys have ever watched the National Geographic where the lions take down like a buffalo and then they slowly eat the buffalo and then the camera pans away because it gets pretty gnarly because the buffalo is still alive. This is essentially what's going on in this scene. It's cannibal cows is what's happening and cows are not supposed to eat other cows. This is why Pharaoh gets up in the middle of night. He wakes up because this is a nightmare. It's a shocker for him. He's in a cold sweat. He goes back to sleep. And what happens is we move from cannibal cows to cannibal corn. It's not corn technically, but it's the same idea. You have seven ears of corn, but it says they're all on one stock. Now, by the way, I'm a city boy, so you farmers can help me out with this. But I, what I read, because I'm a bookworm, not a tapeworm, Uh, But what I've learned is that if you have seven ears on one stock, what it means that we're talking about extreme agricultural fertility here. Like this is a rare thing. It can happen. And so we have these seven ears on one stock, which has to do with great fertility. And all of a sudden you have these seven blighted ears that eat them up and destroy them. And Pharaoh wakes up once again in a cold sweat, completely upset, like, what in the world is going on with these nightmares? Gets up in the morning, has to figure things out, so he talks to his magicians and his wise men, and these guys do not earn their paycheck in the least. They're like, boss, we have absolutely no idea what this means. Finally, after two years, that jogs the cupbearer's memory. Dreams Interpretations.: Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. You, know, I know a guy who can interpret your dreams. He interpreted my dream, and you know where he is? He is just a few blocks away in a hole in the ground in the dungeon where I left him two years before. And here is where it gets interesting. I'd like to pause you and no, pause and have you notice something. Notice God's timing in this. Joseph felt forgotten by God for two years. For two years, he's virtually circling the airport. (laughs) No place to land. Nothing is moving. But here is what I want you to realize. If the cupbearer had remembered to tell Pharaoh about the injustices done to Joseph, most likely Pharaoh would have heard Joseph's case Joseph would have been released and Joseph would have been sent home to Canaan. And in this crucial pivotal moment in Egypt's history where somebody needed to be there to interpret the de- dream that Joseph that, excuse me that Pharaoh had. Somebody who was in contact with God needed to be there in that moment. Joseph was exactly where God needed him to be. This idea that uh, the, the cupbearer had forgotten him, yes, he had forgotten him, but it was all part of God's timing. So Joseph would be in exactly the right time, at exactly the right situation, only blocks away to, from Pharaoh to be able to interpret his dreams. Here's what we need to learn. Last week we learned that God sometimes puts us in hard times, and he puts us in hard times to mature us. We also learned he puts us in hard times to prepare us. Today we learn this. Sometimes God does not answer our prayers and take us out of hard times because God is keeping us exactly where he needs us to be to do the work he's given us to do. Let me say that again. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers and take us out of hard times because he's keeping us exactly where we need to be to do the work that God has given us to do. This should be an encouragement for those of us who maybe go through a really difficult time at work. And we've been praying, asking God, God, give me a different job Take me out of this. This is uncomfortable. This is difficult. But God is not taking us out of that tough work environment. And maybe we'll never understand it until two years later, like Joseph. When all of a sudden sudden a situation arises and God has us there so we can be the Christian light, we can be the Christian witness that is needed in that moment. And the reason God had us there and kept us there is because that place is the work that God has called us to do. Now, here's the first application point I want to give you. It's not in your notes. You're going to write it down, though. How do we put ourselves in a position to be lifted up by God? We have to trust God's timing in our life. How do we put ourselves in a position to be lifted up by God? Be a person who trusts God's timing in our life. The story continues. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, you know, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke, and I saw it in my dream, seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt. So that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's start at the beginning here. The first thing I have to tell you that it does comes to mind is I picture Joseph with three years of beard growth in the pit for three years. I mean, I think the Duck Dynasty guys would be really quite jealous of him. We're not going to wash it. We're just going to cut the whole thing off. It is beyond hope, beyond repair. I just think it's sort of funny at that point. Joseph the furball. But then the first thing that Pharaoh says to him is this. I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And I love Joseph's response. And I think you do too. Immediately, Joseph does not take any of the credit to himself for his gifts, his talents, or his skills. Where does he direct credit? Where? To God. He gives it directly to God. Now, isn't this instructive to us? Each of us has different gifts, talents, and skills. Some of you are good musically. Some of you are good in business, and God has given you success in that area. Some of you are just plain wise and smart. And everything about this life makes it real easy to take credit and put the credit onto yourself and say, you know, it's what I did. Yes, I made the right choices, but Joseph gives us a different pattern to follow. He quickly deflects every good thing in his life to God. He stays so incredibly humble. And this is biblical. Look what the Scriptures say. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's from God. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you receive it why do you boast as if you did not receive it Here's a thought for you for you When someone praises you when someone gives you credit what kind of a person are you Do you absorb that glory or do you re- deflect that glory and give it right back to God uh, Many of us know professional athletes. You've seen them under interviews. Some of them, when they're given all kinds of glory and flame, they absorb it. And every once in a while, you get a couple Christians in there who deflect it and give God the credit. Now, here's the application point How do you put yourself in a position that you could be a man or a woman that could be lifted up by God? Give God the credit for your skills talent, and success. How do you put yourself in a position that you are a man or woman that could be lifted up by God? Give God the credit for all your skills, talents, and success. Not yourself. Because if God lifted you up, then you would just be a big ego as opposed to make Him great. Now, the story continues, and I want to point out something else that is really interesting here. Woven throughout this story is a very strong view of God's sovereignty and his control of all of life. We see how God has just declared that there is going to be seven years of great plenty in the land of Egypt. And God has just declared there is going to be seven years of great famine in the land of Egypt. None of this is up to chance. God has firmly fixed this. This will happen. In fact, as we look through the story, we see God is the one, ultimately, who sent Joseph into Egypt. God is the one who was in charge of Pharaoh, who gave Pharaoh his dreams. If you look at the story, God is in complete control of everything. Look what the Scriptures say about this. For instance, uh, Proverbs 16.33, "...the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." Nobody wins the lottery by chance. That's all preordained, decided by God. And how about this? Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The idea is the king thinks he's in charge. He's not. God's in charge of the king, he controls the king's hearts, desires, and decisions. So, on the one hand in this story, I love it because God is big. He's in control of absolutely everything. But here's the cool part. This doesn't lead to fatalism. Fatalism is saying, you know, God is so big. God is so charged. He's in charge of everything. No matter what I do, it really doesn't matter because God will do whatever God wants to do. And somebody comes up with resignation and they sort of throw in the towel and say, well, God's sovereign. It just doesn't really matter. (laughs) That's not what happens. Did you notice it? God may be large and in charge of all things, but it doesn't lead to fatalism in this story. It leads to action. The reason that God has told Pharaoh about the future is so that you can take action and prepare for the future. So you can develop a strategy to save up during the years of plenty. So you can save many lives in the years of famine. You see, this is the really cool part. Because many times we talk about God's sovereignty in the church. We go over the edge on this. Well, God is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. It doesn't really matter what I do. God's going to do what he wants to do anyway. That's a fatalist. It's not a Christian. A Christian says God is large and in charge, but that means that because He's large and in charge, we do something. We see the need, we meet the need. Let me give you an example. Maybe there's a single mom out there. That single mom is struggling and she's in need. And sometimes Christians will see somebody in need and they'll say, well, it's a product of their own choices. And, you know, God is large and in charge, and that's just sovereignly where he has them at that point. That's a fatalist. A Christian says, there's a person who has a need. We see the need. We meet the need. We move into action, and we do something about it. Because God has put this person in need sovereignly across our path at this time, so we will respond. You see how you balance God's sovereignty and action together? They go together. So, how do you put yourself in a position to be lifted up by God? We trust in God's sovereignty, but at the same point, when we see a need, we meet the need and move into action. We don't become fatalists in the midst of it. The story continues. Well, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, "Well, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God?" Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves under your command, only as regards to the throne." Will I be greater than you? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. And he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. This is the great shocker. Joseph goes from the pit to the prison. And the point I want to make in here is actually sort of a strange one, because it's not a point that's in the text but I think it's a point that can be made from reading between the lines of the text a little bit. What seems so strange is how Joseph could go from the dungeon to the throne room so quickly. Why would Pharaoh trust him so much? Here's what I think. I think part of this has to do with Potiphar. Remember who he is. He's head of the secret service. He works directly for Pharaoh. Joseph has worked for Potiphar for 11 years in his home. Rose from a lowly slave to be in charge of everything he owned. And whatever Joseph did in Potiphar's house, he did well with the best of his heart, and it was blessed by God. But we also learned in previous weeks that when Joseph went to prison, the very prison he went to was the prison that Potiphar was in charge over. So he worked for Potiphar in his house, and then he worked for Potiphar in Potiphar's prison as a slave with a collar of iron around his neck and fetters on his feet. Potiphar has seen Joseph in the good times, and he's seen Joseph in the... Hard times. He's watched Joseph work under extreme pressure for 14 years and seen him blessed by God. And remember, the whole time did Joseph get a paycheck? He was a slave, he was a prisoner. He did not get a paycheck, he served Potiphar faithfully. And during those 14 years, I'm just guessing that the stories of how Joseph worked and how Joseph lived would have leaked from Potiphar to Pharaoh, dripped. Isn't that the way it always works? Those kind of stories about the great servant I have and how he responds, people hear that. And that's part of the reason I think Pharaoh was so quick to move him from the dungeon room to the throne room. This is what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that when we are faithful in little things that nobody sees, that God will exalt us and let us be faithful in big things where everybody does see. Luke chapter 16, verse 10 is the verse you're thinking about. Those who are faithful in little will be faithful in much. Joseph was faithful in little things and rose in Potiphar's house. Joseph was faithful even in prison while working for Potiphar, giving his absolute best and was blessed by God. And now Joseph is exalted to be second in command over all of Egypt. And Let me just give you the application point here. How can I put myself in a position to be lifted up by God? Here is what you need to know. Be faithful in the little things when nobody is looking. God will notice, and so will other people. How can I put myself in a position to be lifted up by God? Be faithful in the little things. God will notice, and so will other people. The story wraps up this way. Before the year of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Joseph said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Um, What he says to you, do. And when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, as I read this, the first thing that jumped out to me was at the beginning. It has to do with Joseph's wife, a woman named Asenath. I thought to myself, it says right in the text that she was the daughter of the priest of An. Okay, that her dad was a pagan priest. What in the world is Joseph, this incredibly wise guy who would, you know, Spurn adultery and strive for purity doing, marrying the daughter of a pagan priest. Makes no sense. The whole theme from the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, doing whatever they have to, great pains to marry inside of the covenant family. And here is the poster child of a guy who's trying to live by the covenant, marrying a pagan woman? Now, I don't have all the answers for you, but I do have some thoughts. First, to let you know, there is actually an extra-biblical, I believe it's fictional, it's sort of a history and fiction book mixed together, book written around the time of Jesus called Joseph and Asenath. And it was designed to be some kind of an answer to why Joseph married this woman. And it describes her conversion experience. Now, that may be true. That may not be true. We just don't know. The early church did recognized it, but, but did not put stock in it. But this much we do know. He married this woman who came from a very pagan background, but I want you to notice that through the rest of his life, we have no evidence that she tried to pull him away from the one true God of the universe. Men, you need to understand how incredibly important it is to marry a Christian woman. We know this from Solomon. Remember, Solomon had had God appear to him two times. But when you read his life story, we find out that his foreign wives pulled him away from God. And he walked away from God at the end of his life. We see that in Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. But we don't see that in Joseph. So it leads us to believe that she too became a believer and follower of God. Another point that makes us leads us to believe this, and she had a dramatic conversion story somewhere in here, is her children's names. Because she does not name them after Egyptian names or Egyptian deities. She gives them Hebrew names. Or I should say Joseph and her give them Hebrew names together. In fact, her two sons are enfolded into the 12 tribes of Israel seamlessly. Interesting. So uh, to me, that may be a little trivia, but it seems like she was a, a Christian woman. The other thing I need to point out to you, and I want to just point out to you, uh, one of Joseph's son's names, and that is the boy Manasseh. Manasseh means... Caused to forget, or chose to forget. This is what I think is so important for us to apply, just in a real simple way. Joseph chose to forget, not his God, but his past. Some of you, in fact many of us, have been through some really hard times in life. People have hurt you deeply. They have wounded you. They have done wrong to you. So you have a hard time trusting anybody else. You went through a past that is very similar to what Joseph went through, where his own brothers betrayed him into slavery, where he ended up in, in jail, accused of rape he didn't commit. You understand this. But here is what I love. Joseph let the wounds of his past prepare him for his future. But he drew a line in the sand at the birth of Manasseh and says, Okay, my past prepared me for my future, but I'm not going to let my past control my future. And you, if you've been deeply hurt, you know exactly what I mean. Because when you lay in bed at night, you can keep playing back the tape when you get into a relationship with anybody else, all of a sudden you start treating them with suspicion and you start distrusting them because somebody has hurt you so deeply. Joseph is not going to get stuck in bitterness. He's not going to get stuck in self-pity. He's going to let his past be part of what God used to mature him, but he's not going to let his past become what controls him and nurse grudges for the rest of his life. Here's the point. How do you let yourself be in a position to be lifted up by God? Let the wounds of your past go. Refuse to live in them today. How do you put yourself in a position to be lifted up and used by God? Let the wounds of your past go. Don't keep living in them today. God, use them in your past. Don't live in them in your present. Well, the story of Joseph, it's an incredible story. It's probably the ultimate rags-to-riches story that makes Howard Schultz's rag-to-riches story look pretty small in comparison to it. And I showed you along the way different qualities of the life that God can lift up and use in a great way for his kingdom. But there is one other overarching piece that is not found as a component in the story, but rather it's found like an umbrella over Joseph's story. Let me show it to you. I think it is best encapsulated in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility. I think one of the greatest secrets of a life that God chooses to lift up is to be a man or woman of incredible humility. When we bow ourselves down in humility before God and in humility and service before others, that is the kind of life that God will lift up. Remember Joseph back in Genesis 37? Was he a humble guy? He was a prideful, stuck-up brat when he was 17 years old. But he's learned incredible humility, working in Potiphar's house as a slave without a paycheck, doing his absolute best, always giving his best effort, humbly serving his master, working in the dungeon as a prisoner with chains around his neck, yet put in charge of the other prisoners, incredibly humble, and at the right time, God chose to lift him up. My friends, if you want to be a man or a woman that is lifted up by God, excel in humility before God and in humility before others. Let me just give you some flesh on what that looks like. It means generously giving your life. Real simply, you know, after the service is over, and you walk out in the hall, humble yourselves and meet somebody you don't know. Generously give up your life. Don't just shake their hand and enjoy two minutes of conversation. But open up your heart. Humble yourself and open up your life and take a genuine interest in them. Contact them outside of church. Contact them during the week. Genuinely humble yourself and care for them, even if it costs you. And in time, God will lift you up. But I think uh, the best poster child of this is not Joseph. It's actually a man named Jesus. Joseph was humbled But then he was lifted up by God to save millions from starvation. Jesus humbled himself, left his position at the right hand of God the Father to take on a human body, to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And God lifted him up, not to save millions from earthly starvation, but to save billions from eternal damnation. The life that God lifts up is a life of humility that is willing to put itself down in sacrifice and in love for others and when they get nothing out of it that they deserve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us study Joseph's life and seeing some of the different qualities of his life, the kind of life that you would lift up and use in a great way. Because deep inside, all of us want to do something significant with our lives for your kingdom. All of us would love to be lifted up, <clears throat> lifted up, not for our glory, but for your glory, and to make your name famous. Jesus, uh, thank you for the qualities we saw in Joseph's life, but in particular, thank you for the humility we saw in his life. Not just a humility that allowed him to be the Savior, physical Savior, from starvation for millions and famine, but a humility we have seen in a much greater way, not in Joseph, but in Jesus, that allowed you to lift him up and to be the Savior of our very souls. May we be men and women who humble ourselves before you, even at great cost. And we trust you in your time, in your way, only if you desire to lift us up to do great things for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.